Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to EDI Dialogues at UCL. Our topic of the day is affirmative action, and I would like to welcome Amina Fruzi, who is a research fellow at Yale. Thank you. Hello. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a delight to be here at UCL. I'm also here with two more of my colleagues. My name is Artem Massey, and I'm a first-year philosophy student. My name is Simona Aymar, and I am the Vice Dean of EDI for Arts and Humanities here at UCL. And my name is Christina Lacour. I'm a PhD student in philosophy also here at UCL. Now, a typical understanding of affirmative action in admissions would have it that we should use an awareness of characteristics like race or gender to moderate our initial selection from criteria that are blind to such characteristics. I mean, you've argued that we should understand the role of affirmative action quite differently. Could you just briefly explain your position, perhaps illustrating with an example, how would your understanding of affirmative action play out, for example, for an admissions officer here at a university like UCL? Sure, thank you so much for that question. Uh, suppose you're trying to admit 20 students into UCL Masters for Philosophy. Um, and um, when you select um, the 20%, uh, you constantly see that um, certain minority groups are underrepresented in the admitted pool, um, even though you get a fully representational uh, candidate um, sort of pool. And now, historically, people uh, thought that the way to um, combat that is to use a different criteria for admission, such that this new criteria takes into account minority status and gives um, certain positive um, boost to people of minority backgrounds who are underrepresented in the um, accepted pool of candidates. Um, and so then they could get an output that evenly distributed and proportionate uh, to the candidate pool. And I argue that instead we should um, think of the criteria still the same, but that we should introduce um, a certain amount of error into the selection process such that we still get a representative um, number of uh, candidates who are admitted. Suppose out of the 20 candidates that you have, if you constantly get 12 non-minority students and 8 minority students. Um, what I'm trying to propose is that instead of changing the criteria, you still admit on the same criteria that's um, race or gender neutral, for example, but that um, you don't admit two of the candidates from the non-minority students who would have otherwise gotten admitted. And instead of them, you admit two and a minority students who would have not otherwise gotten admitted. And so you will end up with 10 minority students and 10 non-minority students. And could you tell us a little bit about um, what led you to argue for this position? How did you come to this view? So my interest was piqued when I um, realized that much of the time in the current affirmative action discourse, regardless of how you come to the debate, the numbers are attributed to underperformance of minority candidates. So that when we got 
consistently eight minority candidates and 12 non-minority candidates. The idea is always um, that to explain this disparity in terms of minority candidates performing better than minority candidates. And I think that that's not always at least true, because sometimes you can have minority candidates performing just as well on the neutral criteria, but still you end up with a disproportionate outcome. And I try to solve the puzzle of how that may be. And my um, way of explaining that disparity is that it is possible that even when minority candidates are performing just as well, they are disproportionately negatively affected by implementation error. Um, and to just illustrate that, um, we have a lot of empirical studies that show, for example, that it is likely for an admissions officer to more often um, select a candidate who shouldn't have been selected when they are non-minority than when they are minority. Or conversely, they are more likely to not admit a candidate who should have been admitted um, when they are minority rather than non-minority. And then this disparity in how those errors play out means that, um, for example, out of the 20 people who you selected, say four shouldn't have been selected. Out of those four, um, three candidates who shouldn't have been selected but did were non-minority candidates. Um, and instead of those four people, the four people who should have been selected, um, out of those, it turns out to be that you have three minority candidates. Um, and so the error here, um, this is a human error, basically, and, or implementational error. Um, it's not about the criteria being um, biased towards minority candidates, but in implementation, and much of this is um, implicit bias or, you know, just user error, human error. And these tend to then disproportionately negatively affect minority candidates, and you will still get a disproportionately underrepresented um, selected group, even though all the candidates are performing equally well. Nonetheless, this seems to give some type of concern where um, if we're not admitting the best candidates for certain positions, for example, we uh, use medical students. If we're not admitting the best medical students, then this might lead to them not becoming the, des the best doctors, right? Um, so this is kind of a worry of mine because this is unfair to some candidates. How do you respond to that? That's a good question, and I think many people share that anxiety. Um, first to the idea that um, the society has to bear the costs of this sort of intervention. So as you said, people may be worried that we don't have the best um, doctors then as a result in the society if we're not admitting the top candidates for medical school. Um, there, the problem is um, that we think that the people that we are admitting by error are going to be not 
necessarily qualified. But I think that's a mistake because, first of all, the margin of difference between these candidates are very low. Again, go back to the example of 20 people that you are trying to admit. Um, it is not the case that the person who ends up on this list at the place of 21 or 22 won't make a good doctor. They are probably as qualified or as capable um, to make good doctors if they were given the chance. Um, and sometimes even it turns out that they are not just equally qualified, that they may be better qualified because when we try to select candidates, we are guessing a lot of times. And it may turn out that a candidate that doesn't look so good on the paper might actually outperform other uh, of their peers and vice versa. A candidate that looks really good on paper might not perform as well. Um, but even if you know we are selecting really based on capability and skill, uh, the difference between the person who ranks 20 and 21 is so small that the output of this sort of intervention won't be actually in any sort of real difference in what quality doctors will get. And um, to the point that it's unfair to the best performing candidates, similar sort of analysis um, applies because um, given that the criteria on the paper that we select based on don't necessarily always matches up to their actual performance in the real world as doctors um, means that it is not necessarily the case that they, um, the person who ends up 20 over 21 has a sort of right to be selected. But beyond that, the population who disproportionately benefits from the errors in the system um, can be held subject to evening that benefit out. Thank you, Amin. I find this embracing error approach really interesting. Um, but I have a broad picture type of question. Um, while doing EDI work at UCL, um, I see that there is a split in perception. Some people think that institutions are doing all they can and beyond to be fully equitable, uh, whereas other people feel they are never doing nearly enough. Um, and I wonder, what's your take on this? That's a really good question. And it is very hard for uh, institutions sometimes to gauge on how much they should do. And I think this ties back to Artem's question about the social anxieties about um, what institutions are doing right now. If the society perceives certain interventions that are unjustified, um, then the institutions have to um, adjust um, their approach and how much they can do. So um, really how we understand or frame affirmative action will have um, downstream effects on whether an intervention by an institution is justified or how much of it is justified. And I think institutions find themselves trying to balance the expectations of different sectors of the public and um, the expectations of how um, their interventions are going to be perceived. If they're going to be perceived as fair and mandatory, then they're going to do more. And if they think that 
their interventions are going to be criticized, that they're going to hold back. And maybe that's one way of bringing it uh, together um, because affirmative action is not simply a purely legal question. Rather, it is a social question, it's a moral question, and it's a political question. And institutions are playing only one part in this bigger dialogue. Obviously, there's much more to discuss. And I mean, I'm sure we'll all look forward to following your ongoing work on this topic. Thank you so much for your time here today. I'm Christina. I'm here with Artem and Simona. And this has been UCL EDI Dialogues.